You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Our Global IQ Minute guest is Graham Wood, national correspondent at The Atlantic. He is the author of The Way of the Strangers, which followed his March 2015 Atlantic article, What ISIS Really Wants, which was, incidentally, the most read article in the magazine's 160-year-old history. Welcome. Good to be here. Great to have you here. Your writing has spanned across so many different subjects, including the future of U.S. universities, the role of gangs in prisons, but the Middle East has always drawn you. Tell us a little bit about how you were introduced to the Middle East and how you continued to have it as a drawing interest. I really came of age when the Middle East was the, the most important story for Americans. Even before September 11, 2001, I was traveling in areas where Al-Qaeda was very active. I even went to a conference that was addressed remotely by Osama bin Laden. So during the next decade, it was very easy for someone who was interested in world affairs to make the Middle East his life. So I moved to Cairo, started learning Arabic. You went to AUC, didn't you? The American University in Cairo, indeed, yes. And it was impossible not to feel a magnificent magnetic attraction to the, the, the epicenter of the most interesting things happening in the world. And people always wonder, how does one really get their first good job as a journalist? You, you reported in Cambodia for a while too, right? I did. That was actually while I was still an undergraduate. I had an interest in the Khmer Rouge, and I found that there was a newspaper, an English language newspaper, that was looking for short-term helpers. I was pretty useless to them, but that was my entry into journalism. And your undergraduate degree at Harvard was in what? I studied philosophy and African-American studies. Well, now back to your, your new book. A question that you raise is the debate which continues on whether Islam uh, in any way justifies the crea creation of the is Islamic State, and therefore does it condone the brutality that we see? My answer to that question is that Islam is a big contradictory religion, and people who call themselves Muslims both use the texts and traditions of Islam to support the Islamic State, to justify what it does, and also to condemn it. I think there's been a lot of unnuanced, very monochrome views of what Islam is that has made people understand it either to be a religion of peace, religion of war. My view is that it has the potential for both of these things, and someone who is a faithful, careful reader of its scriptures can find easy justification for both. Where do you stand where President Obama was criticized for not saying Islamic extremism, and of course President Trump does? What's your view about that? My view is that the Islamic State is definitely objectively a, a group that we could call an Islamic extremist group. Now, I understand that politically there are reasons why we might not want to say that. We have many Muslim allies who are opposed for principled reasons and for practical reasons to the Islamic State. But as a journalist, my main loyalty is to the truth. And it is a correct description to say that the Islamic State is an ex Islamic extremist group. One of the things that has perplexed me is, is there a point in time in the history that we've had now, at least recent history in Iraq and in Syria, where perhaps ISIS could have been put down? Oh, there are definitely moments when ISIS could have been destroyed. At what cost? That's a difficult question. ISIS really flourished in places of great chaos, vacuums of power, and it would have been possible with great effort and exertion for those to be controlled for other more moderate groups, not necessarily Islamist, but some of them possibly Islamist, to move in and make it impossible for them to work. I think almost everyone who was observing ISIS during that time and is now out of government would say that there were missed opportunities and those are regrettable. And what time was that? And do you put a major part of the blame on the debathification? Debathification would have been an important 
point, yes. I think it was really the departure of the United States from Iraq when we no longer had the ability to both tell the government of Nouri al-Maliki that it was getting itself into huge trouble and make him listen because we did tell him ISIS was on his frontier, could take over some major Iraqi cities, and he simply did not listen. So, so that, you would have advocated keeping more troops? US I think troops? keeping more troops would have allowed the ISIS to be at least kept in Syria, kept out of Iraq. Now, an intervention in Syria would be a whole other kettle of fish, would have been much, much more difficult. It could have been done too, and it's not when, clear. When, how? That would have been before the middle of 2014. So there was a period throughout the year 2013 when ISIS was focused in the city of Raqqa in eastern Syria, when it might have been possible to field a force that would have at least forced them to move out of city centers. It was really the space that they had to develop that caused them to be able to metastasize and go global. So even a harassment operation doesn't require an occupation operation, could have at least slowed them down and made it impossible for them to become the group that they've since become. Now, is this a fair statement to say that ISIS is now on the run, they're losing territory, and if that is the case, what is ISIS 2.0, as some people refer to it? It is certainly true that ISIS is losing territory, but I think it's important to see that when ISIS actually became important, when it was front-page news for us, it was not so much that it took territory, but that it went global in doing so. So we can take back that territory, we've done so very successfully. But in mid-2014, it sort of lit a match to a kind of Islamic extremism that existed globally. And they expressed the call as a religious call that all Muslims need to follow. That's something that taking back territory has only limited effect on. So for that reason, I think that even once Mosul, Raqqa, and other places are taken back, ISIS is still with us. I'm glad you brought it up that way because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is the United States has spent millions on, quote, changing the hearts and minds, and it hasn't been very effective. What role can the United States play or other actors to change those minds? I agree with you, first of all, that it hasn't been effective so far. Some of the, what they call CVE efforts, countering violent extremism, have been, to my mind, downright laughable. And they've been really treating symptoms. Where this comes from is, first of all, an intellectual position, one that the United States, as a secular government, certainly cannot directly affect. But also, it's an opportunistic organization. It is looking for areas that have political disquietude, political chaos and governments that are considered to be predatory and untrustworthy by the people they rule. These are systemic issues. The United States is only part of their solution. But I think if we're looking for the ways to make sure that ISIS can't come back, that it can't come back in, in a form that troubles us as Americans, then yeah, it'll eventually require us to midwife democracies and governments more broadly in places where governments have only been bad for my lifetime. Exactly. You've been a long-time observer of Afghanistan, and what an example that is. I mean, it's now the longest war, essentially, in U.S. history. I believe the Pentagon is probably going to ask for increased U.S. military presence. Do you agree with that, and do we just have to accept that we're going to be there indefinitely? I think we do. I think a responsible read on Afghanistan is that if we are not there, if we don't have a pretty robust presence, then it will only get worse. Worst of all, I think, and this troubles me, that Afghanistan is not always spoken of in the broader strategy of our foreign policy toward the subcontinent. Afghanistan is important for keeping Pakistan afloat, which is in turn a requirement for the continued prosperity and development of India. So I think that the downside risk of having Pakistan 
fall because of the turmoil in Afghanistan is great enough that we should be willing to spend a lot of, of blood and treasure to keep it. What level troops would you recommend? I don't have a number in mind, yeah. but right now there has been a devolution in Afghanistan over the last 10 years, and that needs to be arrested. But on April 13th, we dropped the mother of all bombs, the GBU-43. Was that, in your view, a wise move, or did it just create an opportunity to recruit more terrorists? I don't think it was a significant move either way. Hmm. The, I was the reading today there's still tunnels the, next door that are... Of course. The areas that have been troublesome in Afghanistan are many. Dropping one bomb just does not come close to solving the problems there. We just have another minute. I want to ask you about your research you did for the Way for Strangers. You interviewed many supporters of ISIS. Bram, what surprised you the most? How much I liked them. These were people who I really enjoyed their presence. I would have more conversations with them if I could, except they're now in prison or they're in Syria or elsewhere. And you go into these conversations thinking that the people you meet will be savages. And you find that they are people you understand. In short, they're you. Mm -hmm. That is a much more unsettling discovery than, than to find that they're brutes or that they're psychopaths. They're people who you understand whose logic is one you can follow. And it's only one part of their personality. Yeah, they're also teenagers, they're football players, they're hot chocolate addicts, you name it. They all have different aspects to their lives beyond ISIS, but they're, they're true believers nonetheless. Well, congratulations. It's a remarkable book and well-researched, and I know our listeners are going to enjoy it. And also, if you've enjoyed listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, please share it with your friends. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.